This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Oliver Condit, the editor of BBC Music Magazine, and welcome to the BBC Music Podcast. You can buy a copy of the magazine at your local newsagents or download our app to your iPad, Kindle Fire or Android tablet. And for the latest music news and more, head to our website at classical-music.com. This month, Jeremy Pan, the deputy editor, and Rebecca Franks, the reviews editor, join me in the studio for First Listen, where we listen to and rate a significant new release. This month, it's the turn of the complete Sibelius symphonies recorded on the BIS label by the Lati Symphony Orchestra under Oku Kamu. So is this recording full of Nordic crispness and majesty, or is it just a little bit chilly and a bit damp? Jeremy, what are your um, first impressions of the symphonies that you've been listening to? I think you've been concentrating on symphonies one and four. Yes, this, this, this set is... Um divided into three different discs. You've got one and four in one disc, then you've got two and five on the second, and three, six, and seven on the third. And I've I've been listening in particular to one and four, which actually they make a, a fascinating coupling because the two symphonies are divided by only about 12 years apart. Um, the first is from 1899, and the fourth is from 1910. And they couldn't be more different in character, and that's brought out really nicely in this recording. Um, in 1899, the first... Um, Sibelius was still very much in a sort of late romantic mode. Um, he actually semi-acknowledged that Tchaikovsky had had a little bit of a part in influencing the symphony. And in the, the bit I want us to listen to just now, you'll hear this. This is the big theme from the fourth movement. You'll really hear just how Tchaikovsky and it can get in parts. 
And now I'd like to contrast that with his fourth symphony, which was written only 11 years later. Um, And by this stage, Sibelius was not in his kind of greatest form. Um, He'd had a very bad throat operation. He'd had to give up both um, smoking and drinking, which, if you know Sibelius, were both quite hardships for him to to do. Um, And the fourth is an extraordinary work. It's kind of years ahead of its time. It's very, very spare. It's very philosophical. complete contrast to to the first which we heard just now. And the passage I want to take is um, from the Largo third movement, which is a very sort of bleak movement. And the solo writing here is actually, it's a little bit like kind of Shostakovich from what Shostakovich was doing kind of 30, 40 years later. It's extraordinary. So there you have it. There you have two very different worlds of Sibelius, the kind of the late romantic world of the first and this sort of chromatic, sinister world of the fourth, looking forward. Um, and having the two on the same disc is, is a fascinating, fascinating contrast. Um, and I have to say, of the two, um, I think the orchestra really comes out very strongly in the fourth, which has a lot of solo writing. Is The solo is very, very well performed. It's, it's very well recorded as well. Each instrument is picked out brilliantly in this kind of um, this most spare of symphonies so do you think the orchestra really does uh, tackle both styles um well does it adapt well i mean is, is this a this is a disc you'll be returning to yes definitely i think you know, on these two symphonies yes i think the there's there's a lot of richness in the first which is what you want to hear i think for me the it's the fourth which is the really winning one the the, the level of detail which comes out Oko komu has clearly spent hours kind of picking apart the score and actually bringing out each instrument where he needs to in the fourth Jeremy, thank you. I'll, I'll sort of get your general sort of summing up impressions later on, but I'm going to talk about now symphonies number two and five. And it's interesting that you say that Aku Kamu really does take the textures and bring them out because that's exactly the impression I get at the beginning of the second symphony. There's a real sense of the clean textures and the brass really shining through. I wondered whether there was enough menace throughout the movement. I always get this impression with Sibelius that things are sunny on the surface and yet there is this real sense of underlying threat, the sort of clouds coming over that sort of quite um, stark landscape that you get in Finland. But the strings are really wonderful. The strings, the string playing, I thought, was the the highlight. Um, You really have to strike a balance between the clarity and the richness here. And I, although I found that was a little bit lacking in some of the orchestral, orchestral parts, I thought the strings really did make up for some of the shortfall. Where I really wanted to show um, the strings and also some of the burnished brass was the opening 30 seconds or so, the fourth movement of Symphony Number no. 2. Um, again, I think you'll find that it's very beautiful and all the textures come to the surface here. But again, you know, listening to some of other recordings, particularly Sir Colin Davis with the London Symphony Orchestra, is it lacking something in its menace?
So that was an extract from the finale of series number two. Again, you can hear those strings really shining. But again, I thought right at the start with those very low sort of brass um, digs, if you like, there's a sort of podgeturas you get. Could have been a little bit more, um, uh, a bit rougher. I, th I get a sense there's there's a sense of folk, sort of almost folk tune, almost sort of uh, traditional instruments sort of poking through like a drone at the bottom. And I wonder whether they could be made a little bit more of there. Um, but I love I love the recording. Um, again, I love the recording of Symphony Number no. 5. I found the ensemble playing absolutely wonderful. Um, the opening movement, the horn playing is absolutely terrific here. Uh, again, I wondered if the um, the opening is was, was as sparkling as it could be. Um, I get the, the impression with Symphony Number no. 5 that it opens with dawn and you get the glimmers of dew shining through the gloom and again I sometimes got that impression a little bit more with some other recordings um, but 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 again the textures here are, are wonderfully um, luminous you, you you hear much more in this playing and these symphonies than you do I think in many other recordings um, I'd like to play uh, a little extract, actually, from the first movement of Symphony Number no. Five, again to show that these textures, these textures coming through. This is about um, eleven minutes in uh, from the first movement. You get you get the themes bubbling up under the surface, which Kami really brings to the fore. wonderful, um, almost cinematic um, scoring there, and I think played cinematically by the orchestra. The final movement of this symphony, again, the energy is absolutely fantastic. Just again, I thought the speed might have been a little bit brisker. Um, it's Allegro, marked Allegro Molto. I thought that they played it maybe just Allegro. Um, I think there was just a lacking a bit of Molto. But I, I really did find that these two symphonies um, uh, were painted with just a, a bit more colour than many other recordings that I've listened to. Um, so symphonies number two and five. Rebecca, I think we're going to take us through symphonies three, six and seven. What did you think? Well, this is the final disc in the set, and I know I was focusing on this, but I think it's also my favourite disc of the set. Uh, I like the programme. I think the, 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 I mean, I suppose you kind of had to end with the Seventh Symphony because, you know, this organic one movement, really a culmination of the whole symphonic cycle. And if, when you're listening, you, you're going to want to end with that. And then we, we start with the Third Symphony. So that was from 20 years before, so from 1904, um, in C major. And then we go into the very elusive, really, sort of, uh, quite hard to grasp, I find, the Sixth Symphony. And then we return to the C major of the Seventh Symphony. So it's quite a satisfying uh, programme. And I also like this because the Symphony Number no. 6 is a piece I don't know so well. And I think it's in the same way that Vaughan Williams's Pastoral Symphony is quite has quite an elusive mood and I think it's quite hard to grasp. 
Uh, I think this symphony does as well. It's Sibelius doing something quite different from what he does in all of his other symphonies. He's sort of creating this archaic sort of modal sound world. Uh, it's quite free and fluid in a way. And I thought the orchestra and Okukamu did a fantastic job at really capturing that. And actually, I've chosen a clip which is just right from the end of the symphony, just because the ending, again, is so different to all his other symphonies. We're just going to fade out into this subdued kind of ending. And I think they do that very well as well. So that was the ending of the Sixth Symphony, and it's a piece of which Sibelius said it sort of reminded him of the scent of the first snow. And actually this idea of the kind of the outdoors and the natural world, I felt also came through quite strongly in the Third Symphony, which opens the disc. Uh, it was written when he'd actually just moved kind of from the city to the country, and he sort of pairs everything back. It's on a smaller scale, three movements, uh, with a smaller orchestra, um, than the previous two symphonies. And in this performance, I think the orchestra brings a really lovely rustic kind of fresh air sound, really sort of lovely edges to everything really, real lots of texture, which I think really suits this music. So I'd actually like to play a bit just right from the beginning uh, of the third symphony, which really just sums up the orchestra and the conductor's approach to the whole symphony. you just got a glimpse there of, of the wind and there's lots of wonderful wind writing in this symphony and I think you know we were praising the strings earlier but actually in in here they they do a fantastic job they get, really get a chance to to shine and in the second movement actually the flutes there's this kind of very melancholic sort of dance movement which they do very very effectively I, I just felt that the whole approach was just very fresh and made me really sort of sit back and reevaluate the music which is what you want really isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Jeremy, um, going back to you, uh, we're going to go for some scores now, but um, just give me a sort of general impression of what you thought of this set and, and your score, obviously. I think it's a terrific set. Um, I was reading a while back, I remember seeing someone, was some critic was saying that concert halls are a little bit unimaginative um, in programming all seven surveillance symphonies in one season, that you shouldn't be doing that. I disagree totally, because actually when you listen to a set like this, you just realise how much is going on in this cycle of seven symphonies. Just listen to the ends 
by themselves, for instance, seven different ways of finishing a symphony, basically. And I think it's part of the strength of this set is that there is such a consistent um, brilliance throughout it is that no matter the different styles of the symphonies, the different aspects which are brought out from the romanticism of the first to the bleakness of the fourth to the mysteriousness of the sixth, they do actually do a mar marvellous job in each one. Um, there's tiny little bits here and there which I'd like to improve. I think the seventh could be a little bit more earthy than the recording we get here. Um, but in all, I think it's pretty good and I want to give it eight out of ten. Eight out of ten, Rebecca. I will also give it 8 out of 10. I really, really enjoyed this and I will be going back to listen to it a lot. And I think the the kind of the clarity and the balance um, uh, of the orchestra and the recording was really excellent. You, you feel like you can you can hear everything. So it's, as I say, it's one that I will be returning to. And I think if you were going to buy a Sibelius symphony set from, you know, to celebrate the anniversary that's happening this year, you, you wouldn't go far wrong with this one. Absolutely, and I'm going to join you on 8 out of 10, which makes adding up the scores very easy indeed. Um, I agree with you, Rebecca. This is a set that I think people should go to, and I think, Jeremy, I agree with you with the fact that there's so much variety in these symphonies that I think you cannot go wrong simply putting them on listening to them all. I do find, though, that if you have one orchestra performing all seven symphonies, I wonder whether, in fact, you know, you might be better off sort of perhaps cherry-picking one symphony, two symphonies, three maybe from this set and another one or two from other sets. But I think there's just such a small point because I think that the playing is so excellent and and, and, and the attention to detail is, is really, really top-notch. So um, there was just one or two bits where I thought, nah, this is almost there, but not quite. But it was yeah, very few and far between. So eight out of 10 for me, which gives us an average of eight. So that brings us to the end of this month's first listen. I think we should play out with a clip from Symphony Number no. 7, the only symphony we haven't actually heard from yet. Thank you for listening to this BBC Music Magazine podcast, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at classical-music.com or simply head to iTunes.